Well, good morning. This is, uh, as like we've mentioned already, it's an interesting Sunday in that it's our last in this building. And as we um, kind of say goodbye in this service to this building in a place where we've worshipped for three and a half years, a place that we've seen a lot of great things happen in our church, uh, both growth, not just numerically, but more importantly, as uh, the culture and the personality of our church has matured and, 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 and kind of entered into a footing where we kind of know ourselves a little better, what it means to be Grace Alameda as the people of God. And uh, it's been really exciting to be a part of that. Uh, I hope you've really enjoyed that. And we, if anything, are even more excited about where God is leading us um, in this time. Uh, looking at the future and looking into the next month and the months to come and the years to come, um, whether that means we stay at 4 p.m. for a long time in a different location, uh, whether that means God has something else in store. Uh, either way, it's, it's um, always interesting to be on the precipice of change. Uh, and that gets us nervous sometimes, and that gets us thinking sometimes, but hopefully more than anything, it gets us reflecting and praying about what God is doing. You know, one of the interesting things about this building, as you've worshipped here, and for those of you who've been here from the very early days, you you've probably have noticed it, and if you've heard stories about this building, is uh, we are sitting in what really used to be an old movie theater, right? If you look at the building itself, and you're able to strip away kind of the uh, spiritual elements of the building, uh, if you just look at the bones of it, uh, this, this building was originally designed to be a theater. And there's all kinds of stories about what uh, happened and how it became a church. Um, one of the interesting ones that I've heard from one of the old timers here in Alameda, uh, they said that this theater uh, was built and then began to have competition from the other bigger theater that's still in use. Uh, and that also this theater started to play seedier movies. And so it lost a little popularity because of that and eventually got shut down and bought by a church. Um, but what's interesting is, you know, I always wonder if you took the architect who originally built this building and brought him back and to have them just share the little nuances and the little, little nooks and crannies about why they made the building the way it did. Uh, it, it has this kind of, it seems like an art deco feel from the period that it was built, right? Uh, a very popular look, the way some of the columns are, the way you've got these weird lines on the wall. Uh, and um, even just the entrance of the building, the way it has curves, um, and, and just all, the certain way it was originally intended, the little details. And I would, I would love to hear the architect talk about that and, and talk about what they were hoping for and, and the kind of grand design they had in mind. Surely this back wall probably was pushed farther, right, to fit more people in here, um, that there wasn't this other kind of fellowship space behind us. Um, and just the, the, the original design. And then it'd be interesting to bring in the person who changed this building, who turned it into uh, church purposes. Because clearly this here is meant for a choir of some sort, right? It seems like this would be a perfect place to put a choir in the back. They brought this wall in probably for the purpose of, you know, having more space for people to gather, uh, children's space, uh, these areas. Uh, there originally was an organ there. They put a piano here because those were the main instruments probably for the church when it first started. And so it's interesting to think about how even buildings shift over time and their purpose for what they do. You know, our last chapter, as we reflect on what it means to be in the wilderness, 
for our church and especially for the people of Israel, this last chapter of Exodus goes into the precise details of tabernacle construction. And in fact, uh, the last six or seven chapters actually get into uh, tabernacle construction talking about how a lampstand should look like, what the curtain should look like, what the doorposts should have on them. And it, it really, uh, if you compare it to the earlier chapters of Exodus, where you've got all this incredible action, right? Um, you know, when they do, uh, if you remember the Disney cartoon Prince of Egypt, they do the whole beginning part of Exodus. They sure as heck don't show you the part where Moses constructs the tabernacle. That cartoon probably wouldn't be too interesting to watch, right? Because all the action happens in the earlier chapters, and these last couple ones are just construction details. And I, I kind of wonder what Moses was thinking through this whole time, you know? Here's this man who uh, freed the people, was speaking to God through a burning bush, was uh, persecuted as his people rebelled against him and demanded things, and almost was put to death by the very people he led, who got to watch firsthand all the miracles and signs and wonders, and then spends days sitting on a mountaintop just writing down note, construction notes. Just the, the drastic change of what God called him into. You know, did he have questions about what was going on? What is God trying to do? This doesn't seem to make sense. And yet, in a lot of ways, the tabernacle is a, a fitting finish to the book of Exodus. It's actually the right way to end this book. You know, because when you think about design, design is about form. It's not just about form, but it's about purpose as well right? You can have beautiful form, but if it doesn't achieve the purpose of the item, then it doesn't matter. A beautiful gold leaf diamond studded toilet with no place to sit or does not flush is not a good toilet. It may look beautiful. It may be worth a lot as an art piece, but in terms of its purpose, it serves none. And so why does God spend so much time in these last chapters talking about a tabernacle when so much of what's been happening in the book of Exodus has been action and movement and relationships happening. What we see this morning is that the tabernacle serves as a confirmation for God's people as they reach the end of their wilderness time, a confirmation that his promise to Israel will remain true, that God will always be with his people, and that it's also a sign of what is to come in God's plan of redemption. So we're going to think and reflect on three things uh, as we think about what God is devoted to. First, there's a devotion in the building of the tabernacle to purpose, a devotion to purpose. Secondly, there's a devotion to presence. And then lastly, a devotion to praise. So purpose, presence, and praise. As we get to uh, Exodus 40 here, we are exactly one year to the day when Israel set out. From Egypt. One year ago from the day in which Moses finally consecrates and anoints the temple or the tabernacle, it's set up this mobile temple. It's a year to the day when Israel were slaves in Egypt on the night that they were huddled in shacks and they were eating a big plate of lamb that was sacrificed with blood smeared on their doorposts as they prayed that God's judgment would pass over their homes. That the angel of death would not visit 
them and take away their children. A year to the day when they wondered whether God was with them in this escape attempt. And so for a year they, after they escaped, they wandered the desert. They lived on the border of life and death. They, they starved, they complained, they argued, they rebelled. And through it all, one question hovered over, uh, their, over them. Uh, one question dwelled in their hearts through this one year of wandering. Is God with us or not? We've left Egypt. Is God with us? or not. And now a year later, they dedicate a tabernacle, a mobile temple. And finally God says, I will be in the center of your camp. I will be present with you. No more will you find me thundering in the clouds on a mountain while you wait at the foot. No more will I just be a fire, a pillar of fire in the night only, and a cloud in the sky only, or just in burning bushes. No more will you see evidence of me just in quail appearing out of nowhere, or bread forming on the ground, or water gushing from a rock. But my presence will be with you in the center of your camp, wherever you go. And so you see why this might be a fitting end to Exodus, right? God finally coming back, you know, in the same way that since Adam and Eve fell, ever since they were rejected from the garden, God's people have always sought to restore the relationship with them, to find that intimacy of communion, to be in his presence once again. You know, Jeff talked last week about our existential search for glory, that we want to feel worth and presence, and only that can come from God and how we're all looking for it. And the tabernacle represented that reestablishing of God's presence amongst his people in a physical, tangible way, a dwelling place for his glory. And you know, it's, it's the same way cities today and, and people are building, societies build tabernacles and temples all over the place right? Uh, you look at ancient cultures, they had temples everywhere and different ways in which they went to their gods. Frankly, you know, we live in a less quote-unquote, um, uh, because of our modern era where people are above spirituality and really just see things through a scientific way, but we're still building temples. We build temples to sport. That's why we have coliseums and arenas and baseball stadiums, right? We build temples uh, to our celebrities. That's why we have Hollywood and a gigantic sign on a hill that tells you everything. That's why we have concert halls and places. Those are all places in essence of worship, are they not? Where we worship fame, fortune, uh, celebrity, or ability, because we're all looking for glory. And so these tabernacle, this tabernacle is really no different than what our culture does on some level. The only difference is this is a tabernacle to the great almighty God, three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And yet even in this tabernacle, what we do notice in the building of it, and if you know the history of what tabernacles and temples looked like in the Old Testament, is that there were still barriers to God. Because it wasn't like you open a door into a tabernacle and there's God sitting on a throne saying, welcome my child, right? 
That's not how tabernacles functioned. But there were different sections of a tabernacle. There was a courtyard which only certain people, priests, primarily could enter into. And then within that courtyard was a holy place that was actually covered. And you walked in there, but only priests could go in there. And there, were, uh, there was a lampstand and a basin and all these different things that they had to do to go into that. And then within that area, the holy place, there was separated by a curtain, the most holy place, which is where the actual ark uh, dwelled. It's where God's law was put and that was supposed to be the very place in which God dwelt. And only the high priest on only one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, could enter in. And only in that case, if he had made sacrifice, if he had done the right prayers, if he had done the ritual wa washing, not anyone could have access to God in the tabernacle or the temple. Not anyone could just go in whenever they want. And if that seems a little weird to you, well, the reality is, isn't that the same for any sort of house of worship you go to? If you've ever visited a Buddhist temple, if you want to properly worship Buddha, right, you're supposed to bring fruit. You're supposed to bring some sort of form of something to offer to the God. You're supposed to take your shoes off. You're supposed to be quiet. If you go to a concert, Right? You have to pay a ticket. You have to go through security. You have to cheer the certain way and sing praises the right way. Any sort of attempt and access we get to worship, to, to seek glory, to seek uh, some greater presence or power in our lives, always requires us paying some price, doing something to make our way in. And the tabernacle of God in the Old Testament functioned the same way. Again, it wasn't just free, easy access to God. It was great because, again, they knew. It's better to know that he's somewhere than nowhere, right? It's better to know that he's somewhere than nowhere. But to enter in, you still had to do the right occupation, do the right things, and be the right ethnicity. And so, if anything, the tabernacles served the purpose of bringing God to his people, but also accomplished two other things. First, in a, in a good way, it tells us that God's chief purpose was to always return and be present with his people. You know, we live in a time where people think God, uh, their ideas of God is a divine watchmaker. He sets forth creation and then lets it go, and we'll let earth figure it out for themselves, human beings figure it out for themselves. That people carry this image of a God who is very uh, separate from his creation, right? And yet what we see in scripture is that God, his, his goal, his desire has always been to be with his creation, to be with his people. And that there's an unfolding plan here that you see in Exodus where God is at work. And that this wilderness wandering, this moving from Egypt into wilderness and eventually into Canaan, the land of milk and honey, all this is part of an unfolding plan of God wanting to be with his people. But he has to bring them through whatever it is that he needs to bring them through. And so that's the first purpose of what the tabernacle represented, a reminder that God will still be with his people. But secondly, the tabernacle reminds them that that can't be the final answer. That if the final answer for God to be with his people 
is to dwell in the center of three different sections that required sacrifice, cleansing, and the only time you could visit is once a year, and only one person who was the representative of all the people could visit. How close, how intimate does that communion feel like? You know, if you had a, fam- a grandfather who was known to be an incredibly wonderful, amazing man, accomplished many things, and yet you could only visit your grandfather once a year, and only if you wore the right suit, right? And only if you first talked to the maid, and then you talked to the daughter, and then the son, and then finally you could be in his presence and ask one question. What kind of intimate relationship do you have with that grandfather? And so what this tabernacle reminded us is that this could not possibly be the final answer of how God would be with his people, but could only be a sign of greater things to come. This could not be the end because there were still too many barriers between God and his people, and that something or someone better was to come. And so while it served a purpose, it, it, it lacked presence. It lacked God's presence. And so there's this devotion to presence that comes through later that the tabernacle signifies. You know, years later, down the line, after the tabernacle's built and the people are moving from place to place, because again, this is, as you read earlier, it's mobile. So it's really just a bunch of tents. And so they were able to take it up and move with it whenever they needed to go from location to location because they were still in the wilderness. And yet eventually there comes a day, years down the line, where they finally get to settle in the land that God had set out before them, where they defeat their enemies and they're able to build a civilization. They build their cities, but most importantly, they would build a temple. Uh, They would settle and be in a place where they no longer starved, they no longer thirsted, they no longer wandered, and the tabernacle would become a glorious temple made of stones, and uh, uh, it would be an actual location that all the people in the cities would come to, to the chief city, Jerusalem, to come and to meet and worship God. And this temple became a point of pride. You know, if you read the rest of the Old Testament, so, many, so much of the prophets refer to the old temple. David in the Psalms talks about looking to the temple as his hope, as a place of salvation, right? The prophets talk about the temple being the place in which God continues to reign over the earth. And so for the people of God, Israel, this tabernacle eventually became a temple, the very source of their identity because it rep- represented the God who led them and was with them. And so the worst thing you could do, the worst thing you could do is talk about the destruction of the temple. The worst thing you could do is talk about how the temple perhaps did not mean what it really meant. Or uh, talk about how God wasn't really there or would no longer be with his people if the temple were destroyed. Because the temple would be Israel's sensitive spot. This tabernacle, which became the temple, because all the promises, all the evidence that God was with his people were wrapped up in this one building and in this one place. You know, you think about um, when you go back to places, uh, when you think about 9-11 and you think about the world trade, uh, uh, the buildings coming down, and you also think about all the other uh, different um, places that identify New York City. 
how so much of what is tough to swallow are these buildings that were destroyed and yet there's still buildings that are evidence or proof that the city still stands right the world trade center going down and yet the statue of liberty still stands and so that being a another source of pride it's you know imagine if san francisco didn't have a golden gate bridge anymore the soul of a place in a city wrapped up in a, a an edifice or a building so much of that is tied into the places that we live and yet for israel even more so this was not just a physical building but a spiritual epicenter for them and so you can imagine out of all the things that jesus does in the new testament when he talks he he really angers pharisees all the time right he angers the chief priests he angers all kinds of people but the one thing that angered the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and the Pharisees the most was whenever Jesus talked about the temple. In fact, when Jesus says, destroy the temple and I will rebuild it in three days, that's one of the things that they get so angry about that when they uh, prosecute him, when he's brought before the judge, they come before him and say, Jesus, you're the one who said destroy the temple and build it in three days. What are you going to do about that now? When he's on the cross, they yell at him, you said you were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. How are you going to do that now hanging from the cross? It was their sore spot, and they made it known. Why? Because when Jesus says something like that, it's offensive to them because imagine all the it took hundreds of years for israel to finally build their temple to go from tabernacle to temple and for jesus this random ragtag man wandering with a bunch of ragtag friends saying destroy that temple i'll rebuild it in three days the kind of claim that he was making right saying in essence i'm not just moses i'm going to be better than moses because I'm going to put up a better tabernacle. I'm better than all the people, David, Solomon, all the people that attempted to build the temple of God. I can build it better and faster and quicker. He was claiming to be divinely ordained by God to do the job. And so they got angry at him, right? Because of him talking about how he could take care of this temple and build it and destroy, destroy it and build it back up. And as usual, Jesus' enemies missed the point right? They missed the point because what Jesus is really saying when he said, destroy the temple and I will rebuild it in three days, he was talking about himself. Destroy me, kill me, and I will rise in three days. Because Jesus was saying something way more deep than what the scribes and the Pharisees saw. Jesus is saying, I am the temple. I am the tabernacle. That which Moses built in Exodus 40, I fulfill that. You want God's presence to be with you without barriers anymore? You want intimacy and communion? I am here. Jesus is saying, you want his glory? Here I am. You want access to God? All the barriers are gone. I am the light on the lampstand that will never burn out. I am the bread on the altar that you will never uh, starve of. I am the water in the basin that washes you clean for eternity. I am the final blood sacrifice that you need to have eternal access to God. We didn't read this, but before in verse 34 and verse 33, 
it says Moses finally finished the work of building the tabernacle. And after that, you read in verse 34 and everything after, God's glory fills the temple. Just this big rushing whoosh or whatever it was. He fills the temple like a cloud of glory. So how fitting then is it when Jesus says it is finished on the cross and he breathes his last breath and the temple curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. Because in the Old Testament, in, in, in Exodus 40, Moses says it is finished and God's glory fills the temple. Jesus says it is finished. The curtain is torn and God's glory pours out from the temple into the world upon his people. Christ is the true tabernacle. He's the one in whom God has fully revealed his glory in. And it means that once, what was once behind the curtain for Israel, what was once behind the curtain for all of us in our sin, in our brokenness, all the barriers and obstacles that keep us from knowing God, all of that is taken away in Christ. And I'm not just talking about the barriers and obstacles that some of you physically may face. There are places in this world, right? You go to countries where there's persecution and oppression. There are actual physical barriers keeping people from worshiping and meeting and knowing God. Places where the Bibles are taken away and burned. Places where if you gather to try to worship, the police come and arrest you. And then you're forced into a labor camp. Places where you will be shot on sight for worshiping God. There are physical places where that happens. There are barriers in those places. And yet for some of us, we have barriers as well. Things that have taken us away from God. And for some of us, maybe that's a, maybe that's a, a psychological, maybe it's an emotional thing for you. Something, some pain or hurt you've gone through. Something you've struggled through, an obstacle, a curtain of some sort that has kept you from really engaging and knowing God the way perhaps your heart has always longed for and yet has not found a way in. And I, I feel for you, and I want to pray with you, and I want to, I, you, we want to hear that story. We want to walk with you in that. But know that ultimately, the only one who can make that way, take away that barrier, rip that curtain in two in your heart, emotionally, spiritually, whatever it is that you're engaging and wrestling with, the only person that can do that is Christ. And he yearns to do that and wants to do that. Because what's, what was once behind the curtain is now ripped open and torn because Christ is here. And he offers a relationship with our Lord in intimacy and in love without barriers and without obstacles. You know, one of the things I've occasionally lost sight of in the past four months as we've gone through this building situation is, is just this reality. And I've, I've, it's funny because we're talking about tabernacles and actual buildings and whatnot, and I've just gotten caught up in actual buildings over the past four months. There's been moments where, you know, thinking about where are we going to be, and even when we settled on going to Alameda Christian Reformed at 4 p.m., I've wondered in my weakness and my doubt, how can God bring glory at 4 p.m.? God is a morning person. He can't bring his glory at four, right? Or how, how does God bring glory? We have such a great location here, right? Park Street's right up here. How does God bring glory to a suburban church nestled amongst cozy houses, 
God is an urban God. He loves cities. And I've lost sight of that at times, and it's been discouraged. I've discouraged myself because what I've forgotten is that God makes his glory known through, through, it's unleashed in Christ. What this chapter has reminded me of is that God doesn't contain his glory anymore in a time or a place. He's not requiring rituals or requiring obstacles to overcome to be with him. And the beauty is that no matter where we worship, God will be there. His presence will rest upon us regardless of the building and regardless of the time. Because as long as Grace Alameda gathers around Christ, the living word, as long as we gather around Christ's flesh and blood as he's offered to us at the Lord's table, as long as we gather as the body of Christ with Jesus as our head in community, the Lord will be with us. Praise God. And it doesn't matter if that's 10 a.m. or 4 p.m. It doesn't matter if it's Santa Clara or Encinal. The Lord will be with us. He is present with his people because the tabernacle is not a building. It is Christ. What great joy is that? And if we are devoted to being present with our God as we gather and worship, then we must be devoted to his praise. We must be devoted to worship. We must be devoted to making him known and proclaiming him. Three things to reflect on as we kind of go from here. What does it mean that God, that Christ is our tabernacle? That he is with us regardless of where we worship, regardless of where we, where we are next week and what our lives might look like. First, one thing to consider. We can now give praise. There are no more barriers to being in relationship to God. There's nothing, there's no barrier in relationship to God when you are in Christ. In the Old Testament, you needed sacrifices, you needed cleansing, you needed to say the right prayers to get to God. You had to do the right things, you had to be the right person. But Jesus did all the perfect things for us. He was the perfect person for us, so we don't have to be anymore. And so there's no qualifications we need or that we have inherent to us. It doesn't matter because everything's been earned for us by Christ. And it's that grace that he gives to us that makes us perfect for the job. It makes him the perfect tabernacle, dwelling place of God. He's the greater Moses because he's not just a servant. He's the son who builds the building. Hebrews 3, 5 through 6, it says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Jesus doesn't just build God's house. He lives in it. He is the house. And we are in Christ. We live in that house. We live in Christ. And Christ in us. Jesus is also the ultimate sacrifice and the sacrifice maker. Hebrews 9, 11, 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Think about 
back in the Old Testament, if you're the high priest, the nerves you have carrying in a sacrifice into the most holy place, the one of blood that you need to make proper, and being sure you don't spill that sucker, like bringing out a cake on a wedding day and making sure you don't topple that over because it ruins the whole ceremony. The nerves and, and the, what, the weight of what was upon the high priest in that same way, for a lot of us, we carry that same thing still to God. We say, God, man, I hope these good works are good enough. God, I hope I've behaved well enough. God, I hope you approve of all the things I've done this week so that I can get this or have this or that you would treat me this way. But friends, we don't need to be high priests. Christ is our high priest. Friends, you don't need to bring sacrifices. Christ is the final sacrifice. He has opened up the way eternally to God. So all this, Christ is our high priest. Christ is the final sacrifice. Christ is the tabernacle itself. What that means is that you can come to God by grace alone, through faith alone in him, Jesus Christ alone, because he's done it all. And so that means even today, no matter what it is that plagues your soul, no matter what it is, the guilt and shame you are sitting in and dwelling in and wallowing in, the sadness, because maybe you don't feel like worshiping God today or you don't feel like God's with you today. The reality is Christ is in you, and if he's in you, then God is with you. And that's freely given. You don't earn it. It's given when you ask in Jesus' name. It's yours. You can receive him by faith. And that's it today. Secondly, another thing that we can give praise for is this reality that God's glory is alive in us because of Christ. The same glory that in the Old Testament dwelled on a mountain and told Israel, if you come anywhere close to the foot, if you step foot on this mountain, you will be struck dead. If an animal climbs this mountain, that animal will be struck dead because God's glory is on this mountain. And the same glory that once it poured into the temple as Moses, who constructed the whole thing, started from the center, moved on out, and then when it said it's finished, God's glory fills the temple, and suddenly the architect who built that temple couldn't even go in. That type of glory that God had now dwells in us and makes its home in you by the Holy Spirit. You know, 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, Paul talks about how our body is a temple. And it's one of those things that you've probably heard. If you grew up in the church, you heard people talk about it all the time. Right? Your body is a temple. But usually it meant like, you know, people trying to justify working out a little too much. Right? This body's a temple. Right? I obviously didn't do that. Um, but other people would be like, your body's a temple. You shouldn't smoke or you shouldn't get tattoos or whatever, right? Your body's a temple. But the problem is, is all of that abuses what Paul's getting at. Because what Paul's saying is that your body's a temple because Christ is in you. And out of all the places that God has chosen to dwell, he has decided to do it in you by faith in Christ. That the God is doing this work in the same way that he is reestablishing his people in the tabernacle, right? Reestablishing his presence by putting the tabernacle with them as they've wandered in the desert, in the wilderness. God is now reestablishing you as he puts his very own spirit 
in you by Christ to dwell in you, that his glory is in you. You know, I allow so many things every day to dictate how my day will go, right? My schedule, I look at my calendar every morning and go, well, it looks like it's going to be that kind of day, right? Or I look at my child and she's crying and teething and snot's coming out. I'm like, well, it's probably going to be that kind of day for Janice. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I allow my selfish desires, I allow my mood, I allow all kinds of things to dictate my day. But what would it look like if I woke up, looked in the mirror, and recognized that Christ is in me, God's glory dwells in me, and that's how this day will go? That Colossians 1.27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That in the, from the moment you wake up to the moment you sleep, Christ in you, the hope of glory. When you get that email from your coworker telling you you've screwed up, when your wife reminds you you haven't done these four chores that she asked you to do earlier, Christ in you, the hope of glory, you don't need to defend yourself. You can just do them with joy. When you look at your neighbors, whether you get along with them or you don't, Christ in you, the hope of glory. How does that change the way you approach them? And when it comes to the way you approach God and the barriers that we talked about earlier in your heart, whether it's a struggle with sadness or depression, whether it's a struggle with anger and frustration, whether it's a struggle with whatever it is that you are going through, to be able to look and say with confidence, Christ in me, the hope of glory, God dwells here out of all the places he chose. What kind of life of praise would that lead you into? What kind of joy can be shared with those around you if that were emanating and dictating how you are to live? Lastly, the last aspect of praise we can give in light of, in light of reflecting on the tabernacle is that we are not just individual temples of God. Yes, Christ in us, the hope of glory, and that's true for each and every one of us as we take hold by faith. But also, as we gather together in a new community of worship, we are the temple of God. Ephesians 2, 19-22, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Cornerstone, again, temple language. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. As we come together and worship, we are built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so regardless of what building we're in, the edifice itself, these walls don't make this a house of worship. Christ 
alive in us as we sing his praise, as we proclaim his word, as we delight in him and gather as his people. That's what makes this a house of worship. That's what's going to make 4 p.m. on Encinal Avenue a house of worship. Because the beauty and glory of God is never truly, chiefly displayed by stained glass windows or children's ministry areas. After all, the early church, they met in catacombs. They met in graveyards. But God's beauty and glory is made present in Alameda and the East Bay and the world by our community in Christ. And it will be heard by the sound of our praises as we worship and as we witness and share the gospel. It will be seen by love and good deeds as we welcome neighbor, neighbors, as we go and serve strangers, and as we even forgive our enemies. Grace Alameda, next week, we will be in a different time and a different place. But the God we worship will still be the very same. And his grace will continue to be sufficient, and his mercy will still be abundant. Because we are a new community in Christ. Grace Alameda, at least for this week and next week, will be a traveling tabernacle. But it's Christ who is going with us. He has paved the way to God's glory for us. And we shall continue to be devoted to worship in his name. And that is something we can give great praise and delight and joy in as things look totally different next week. So let's carry that in our hearts as we go out this Sunday and as we look forward to what God has in store for grace next Sunday. Amen? Let's pray.